Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. This is your host, Gabriella Campbell. I realized that some of our listeners are new to the podcast and don't know me as well. So uh, I thought I'd give a little further introduction. I'm also planning on doing a get to know me and catch up episode about what's been going on in my life lately. So you'll have that soon. But in the meantime, I am just beginning my third year as an anthropology major at UC Santa Barbara. That's where I'm based out of. And that's where most of our podcast guests are also based out of, but I'm hoping to soon branch out and to have on other, um, other experts from other universities as well. And I have a dog. Her name's Daisy. She's a six-year-old American Eskimo rescue dog. I love her to death. I call her my little podcast buddy. And I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. If you're new here, Um, please check out our other episodes, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, all of that super appreciated. You can follow us at that anthro podcast on Instagram. This is also my first time recording with a podcast microphone. And while this, um, while this episode is not with that microphone, I did try, I bought the wrong connector cord for my phone. So right now I'm connected to my computer. So I hope this audio is a bit better than maybe it's been in the past. I am working on it, but I am also a college student and I don't have a lot of money. So I'm doing my best to produce this low cost, but also have it be interesting for you guys. So I hope that maybe this audio sounds a bit better. Hopefully our interviews will be through this microphone soon. I'm working on it. Also, um, I mentioned this in a previous episode that some of our episodes, some of our episodes are going to have to be bi-weekly. I'm going to do my best to produce an episode per week, but sometimes I really just can't get someone to come on and I'd rather spend that time working on another interview rather than giving you just some fluff. I want all the episodes that I produce to be the best they can be. This week's podcast shout out goes to Anthrobiology, hosted by the lovely Gabby LaPera. I just recently found this. I typed in Anthropology Podcasts to Spotify because I was bored, which just shows you why I created a podcast because clearly I love them. And I found Gabby's podcast. Yes, she's a fellow Gabby. We've talked about it. It's funny. She's wonderful. 
anyway, so her podcast focuses specifically on the more biological side of anthropology. So she has a lot of bioarchaeologists, forensic anthropologists, primatologists, evolutionary um, anthropologists, things like that. So I'd highly recommend you guys check her podcast out. Again, it's Anthrobiology. Um, she also, that's the same username on Instagram. So check that out. And the book that I'm reading this week that I would like to share with all of you is called A Conspiracy of Bones by Kathy Rikes. And I'm a big fan of Kathy Rikes. She's the woman who inspired the TV show Bones and she actually produced on the show. And this is her newest book. She just released it in 2020. And it is, um, I'm about halfway and I'm already really enjoying it. She's a very captivating writer. So I'd recommend you guys all check that out. And I'm going to try to, on the podcast episode, give you guys some recommendations for other podcasts or books to read since I know we're all bored right now. And I'm sure that if you're here listening to my podcast, you are interested in similar content. So there you go. Well, anyway, with all that out of the way, I'd like to introduce this week's guest, Dr. Amber Vanderwerker of UCSB. She is one of my personal professors currently, and I was so, so thankful that she made the time to come and chat with you guys today because she's truly a legend in the field and she's awesome. She's also a mother and so she's very busy. So I was really, really happy that we could get this to work out. It's a bit of a longer episode, but I promise you that you want to stick around to the end. At the end, we started talking a lot about diversity in the field and how she is personally striving to improve her outreach and making sure that the opinions that she's presenting to her students are from people of diverse backgrounds and making sure to give platforms to um, marginalized communities, which I think is amazing. So make sure you listen till the end. And without further ado, please welcome Dr. Vanderwerker. Hi, Dr. Vanderwerker. Welcome to that Anthro podcast. Thank you so much for talking with me today, uh, especially as uh, we're preparing for this very busy and virtual fall quarter. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. It's my pleasure, Gabby. Thank you for inviting me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your position at UCSB, and how long you've been here? Let's see. I've been at UCSB 12 or 13 years. Um, And I'm currently a full professor um, and director of the Integrative Subsistence Lab in the Anthropology Department. And where did you do your undergraduate and graduate studies? Um, I went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, I did one year at USC before I transferred to Oklahoma. Um, And it was there that I found archaeology and was able to gain a variety of research experience in the time there. And then I applied to grad schools and I uh, went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. It, it was really great program, a really great college town. Um, and I was orig- I'm originally from Virginia. So it was nice being back in that climate and that part of the country I was used to. It was uh, very comforting. 
you mentioned in class the other day that you were a first generation college student. Uh, what was that experience like in your both undergrad and graduate? I can say being a first generation college student that I was really fortunate to get all the experience I did. Uh, I was really dedicated to my education. It was very important to me. Uh, my mother raised my sister and I alone. She did not have a college degree. She was abandoned basically, or we were abandoned. And she worked one or two jobs throughout the period that I grew up. And it was clear to her that education was really important for us to move beyond where she had moved at that time in her life. And so it was, it was really emphasized that we would go to college. We did not get a lot of oversight in our schoolwork growing up though, but um, grades were important to her and it was really important that we, we went to college and, and were able to be financially independent women if that is what we chose. Wonderful. So you mentioned that at University of Oklahoma is where you discovered archaeology. What made you want to make that your major and focus going forward into grad school? Well, interestingly, uh, when I was at USC and I took a course in cultural anthropology, it blew my mind and I changed my major to anthropology and I declared that major upon coming to the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I, I really liked the idea of archaeology, but at the time I had no idea archaeology was actually part of anthropology. So when I discovered that, um, I was, it blew my mind. I was I was so jazzed about it. And, um, and from there, I just, I just kept pursuing my interests and taking the right classes and, and, and all of that. It was, it was a really great undergraduate experience there. That's great to hear. Um, did you, I suppose when leaving grad school, there's so, sort of several paths you can kind of go down as an anthropologist, archeologist specifically, uh, did you always know that you kind of wanted to do academia and ultimately become a professor or was that kind of just what ended up happening? Yes, that is always what I wanted. Um, from the beginning of declaring the major, I knew. Uh, and be, and, and when I declared the major at USC, which was insanely expensive uh, for someone from my modest means uh, and not the same social class that I was used to, but I, I I declared it then, and then I knew from that moment I would be a professor. That that, and then I, I worked my butt off. I made sure that I got there at every step, at every point. Sometimes your will and your desire to succeed uh, will push you in ways that you never imagined, and you will rise to the occasion. But I was prepared uh, for, you know, not having my dream job. My husband also uh, has his PhD in anthropology. We finished around the same time. And we knew it was very likely that only one of us might end up with the academic position that we want. I've seen that happen to a lot of my friends who are also married to archaeologists. So uh, the fact that we both got hired at UCSB was just a, a fantasy come true. For some of our listeners that don't know, her husband is Dr. Greg Wilson <laughs> at UCSB. Um, so 
looking back now as a professor and you've worked with so many, like you said, you've been at UCSB for almost 13 years. You are the chair of um, un- undergraduate advising for Well, I'm chair of, of the undergraduate committee and I'm the faculty okay. undergraduate advisor. So they're technically two different positions, but they, they do come together, yes. So how has working with all those students kind of given you your own a new perspective of your own time as a student? Does it make you like look back at classes or professors like differently, or maybe it's kind of inspired you to incorporate things that you wished you would have had as a student into your own teaching? Well, I think we need to back up from UCSB and go to the first job that I had, which was at a small liberal arts college in Allentown, Pennsylvania called Muhlenberg. I was there for three years and, um, I did not come from a sort of small college background. And so I I got the job there. And of course the courses were all, you know, 25 students or less, which was fantastic. Um, And it was a way to actually get to know students at, at that early stage. And I would say that um, the sort of unofficial motto of the college is that was at the time people would say it's the caring college. And ultimately it was one of those things where, you know, we were supposed to be quote unquote life coaches. This was alarming to me because um, I had always done things very independently and I worried that we were just creating students that were dependent. Um, But I I had some great experiences with students there. And what I took from that is um, truly understanding what a professor-student interaction should be like. And it really affected the way I approached teaching at UCSB. Um, My very first quarter, um, I recruited an intern out of, actually, the class we're taking right now, Anth 133, uh, Cultural Development in Mesoamerica. And and then a couple grad students came in that wanted to train in paleobotany. And it, you know, it just spiraled from there in, in terms of having sort of really active engagement with many grad students that I have now. And I always have at least six to 10 interns a quarter, obviously not now during COVID. And I, you know, I don't even know when I'll be able to do that again, um, which is just, yes, it's very disheartening. Um, but it, it became clear to me too, when coming here that because this, there were so many students, the student to professor professor ratio was so high compared to what I was used to that um, some students were absolutely lost. Um, They didn't have paths. They didn't know what opportunities were available to them Um, in the same way as the students at Muhlenberg because all of those were made explicitly clear uh, because there was such a small student body. And I came to understand that my undergraduate experience um, of having a lot of contact time with professors having a lot of research opportunities um, was not normal. It was not the norm. And that really affected me. 
And so from there on, I, I really worked to recruit uh, students, um, high achieving students in my courses and high achieving students uh, from diverse backgrounds as well. And, um, and that has created such amazing discussion in my lab, so many different perspectives you get. And then I, I really get to hear what students have to say in that context, students from different backgrounds, whether uh, they be non-traditional students or uh, students of unrepresented minority groups. And from that, it's, I have to say, it is, is really shaped the professor that I've, I've come to be. And I mostly teach. I really oh, admire oh, that. Thank you. Um, I mostly um, teach classes that are 25 students or less, uh, upper division courses. And in that situation, I, I really do get to know the students uh, pretty well. Uh, most, most of them, there's always a few that, that you know, aren't that engaged and don't really want to engage with you specifically, don't come to office hours and the like, but, but by and large, uh, students really respond to you knowing their names, to investment, to compassion, to, um, to high standards as well. And I, you know, I've just made so many amazing um, relationships that have been really rewarding for me over the years. I think coming from a student's perspective, I definitely think that that's such a, a valuable piece of college that either um, has a disconnect in those bigger classes or people don't actively seek out like you're saying, they don't know about the opportunities. And part of doing this podcast was I really wanted to help break down the barrier between professors or grad students or even like alumni and undergrads in that um, communication and learning from others and asking questions is just so helpful. And it's been helpful to me as a student in the anthropology department, but also just as a um, as a citizen of the world, just asking and trying to engage. And so I love that you really want to do that with your students. Uh, the first, so I'm currently in Dr. Vanderwerker's um, Anth 133 class. And the first thing you said on the first day of class was that, you know, you want to get to know us. And I think that's so important and it's so appreciated. Well, it's so much harder now to get to know students. Uh, they can't come to, up to me after yeah. class. Um, I'm used to having a lot of students come up to me after class, and that's how I get to know names. Handing back tests, you know, you get to know names. Um, mm -hmm. And granted, you know, I'm never going to know all the names in the 95-person class, but um, yeah. but I want to be approachable so those students that want to interact, you know, feel like they can. Mm -hmm. And I should say, too, that my, my graduate experience um, – I did almost no teaching or TAing because I was on fellowships the whole time. And it sort of skewed my perspective that, you know, I was a researcher. I was going to get to an R1 university, uh, which is the highest tier, which is what UCSB is. And, you know, I was going to make this amazing research career. And, you know, I would do the teaching because that's expected. Um, and it was ultimately those years at Muhlenberg College. Um, I can't say I was super happy in Allentown, Pennsylvania, 
But it was those years I basically was trained to teach. I mean, no one trained me, but the students trained me, yeah. I could say, maybe. Um, and it, yeah, it was a, you know, back and forth sort of dynamic. I taught them and they taught me um, because they had an expectation that I would be approachable, that I would be available. They came to office hours. I mean, I always had students in my office hours. And and from there, it became not just, you know, saying, what can I do for you? Um, why are you here? Um, you know, they became conversations. Well, what year are you? You know, what year are you in the program? What are you hoping to do? And by asking those sorts of questions, I could help identify opportunities that would help them to get there. Um, and then that's what I brought with me um, when I came to UCSB. That's great. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier you run the Integrative Subsistence Laboratory, ISL, on campus that focuses on the analysis of plant and animal remains recovered from archaeological sites in the New World. Uh, what are some examples of the types of plant remains that you examine and what type of equipment and analyses are being done? Okay. Um, and let me just say, Gabby, I also have problems saying the word subsistence. In fact, I had speech yeah. uh, intervention for my S's when I was in elementary school. So here I find myself too often saying subsistence strategies. Oh, and it's, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Um, so uh, plant remains. Um, so there is a macrobotany and microbotany and macrobotany deals with um, plant materials that you can see with your naked eye. You still need to usually look at them under a low powered microscope to make identifications. Um, and depending on the environmental context, uh, sometimes those remains are desiccated, which means they've been dried and preserved, which is a, a very rare form of plant preservation in archaeological sites um, and restricted, again, to certain uh, broad environments or localized environments. Um, by and large, most of the plant material that we deal with that um, have been carbonized, which means they have been burned um, and altered to carbon, and that sort of renders them to a state where they can no longer decompose. Um, and the only damage you get is the sort of mechanical damage that happens um, through things like trampling or soil contraction or expansion and that sort of thing. So that's generally the most that we get. But um, in terms of, well, let me go back. And so when you're, you're identifying things under the microscope and you know it takes years to achieve expertise um, and you have to spend a lot of microscope time getting there. And, and you're not just going to magically say, oh, wow, that's this. Um, that's this particular plant, uh, unless you've had training. So how do you learn? Well, I have a, a comparative seed collection that is up to, I don't know, more than 700 species now. And, and they're organized by family, uh, but they're also organized, well, and they're labeled by what region of the world they come from. So, so that's really helpful. And with the seed manuals to sort of get students going and learning those things. Um, and then I have the microbotany lab, 
which is uh, sort of a separate room in my lab that is a chemical lab. It has a few mud um, and we extract starch grains, uh, plant starch grains and plant vitalists um, from artifacts, soil, dental calculus, and we put them through different types of chemical extraction methods. And then we mount the, the final product on slides. And then with high powered polarizing microscopes, we can um, illuminate those and identify them. Many, many plants have really distinct phyllith and starch grains uh, that make them diagnostic. And uh, so there's that as well. We've also, um, we've also uh, chemically processed uh, carbonized plant remains uh, for isotope analysis as well. And uh, so in that case, we've looked at maize kernels and got carbon and nitrogen isotopes because they track the sort of environment that the maize was grown in. So you can get at issues related to sort of drought, soil fertility and, and that sort of thing. So, um, but then also uh, uh, with the zooarchaeology, um, I do train students in that. Um, I've been trained in that. My dissertation dealt with both that and plant remains. And I found at some point in my career that um, I just, there's way more demand um, and interest in the sort of burgeoning field of microbotany. And there are many fewer paleoethnobotanists out there than there are zooarchaeologists. So there was a lot more demand and interest in that sort of work. Uh, so I'm really, I, it's, I don't publish that much on uh, zooarchaeological assemblages. Um, but, I, you know, I, I do train students and, and I do publish some things on that. But mostly for me, it's about integrating the plant data with the animal data to get a more holistic picture of ancient diet. Um, and actually, I'm really grateful that we now have Dr. Sarah McClure in our department, who is a zooarchaeologist uh, who works in Europe. And I'm grateful to have her there because there are so many classes that I haven't been able to teach because I have to rotate these other classes. Um, one was the lab course in zooarchaeology and the other was ancient food production. And don't get me wrong, I love teaching that class. But, um, but now that she's sort of, and I will still probably teach the food production class now and then, but now that she's sort of taken those over, um, I'm able to finally develop a new course that I will be teaching for the first time in the spring. And this would be an undergraduate course on the archaeology of gender. Um, so I've been teaching the, the grad seminar on that for years, but I'm happy that I can finally develop this course I've been wanting to teach. Um, and then the other course I mentioned in, uh, in my class on Thursday, which is the professionalization for undergraduates course. Uh, where students will learn about the graduate school application and how to go through that process and also how to how to position yourself for the job market um, in terms of, you know, how to create resumes, how to deal with interviews, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So 
Um, I look forward to that class as well. And I know it will be um, really helpful and useful for students because that's one thing that we don't do. We do all this educating, but then we don't prepare them for the next step. And that's a huge disservice. You brought up that class and I am so excited to take that. I think it's going to be so helpful. Um, And also... Dr. McClure is coming on the podcast in two weeks. So you just gave a perfect (laughs) little preview for her, for all of our listeners. It's going to be great. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, Just fantastic. uh, Yeah, she's wonderful. I took her zoo archaeology class and really enjoyed it. Um, Because my my interest is primarily human osteology. So seeing the differences with zoo archaeology was so fascinating. Uh, Do you describe yourself generally as an archaeologist, but when you're specifically talking about your research, do you call archaeoethnobotanist? <laughs> so there's a couple of terms that people use. Uh, the yeah. word, the term archaeobotany comes out of Europe. And archaeologists in Europe are trained in archaeology departments. They're not trained in anthropology. Um, and in the U.S., um, we're trained in anthropology, archeo- anthropological archaeology. So you know, we take courses in cultural anthropology and biological anthropology and have this broader cultural context that is, you know, important to the research. And so the new world term is paleoethnobotany in terms of adding sort of the people in the ethno part. Um, and that originally that was the distinction. But, you know, over the years, they've just come to be used interchangeably. Um, so I call myself both. And, you know, when I do keywords on papers, I use both, you know, terms, archaeobotany and paleobotany, depending on what, you know, people key into. Good. That's interesting to know. I had no idea. I was like, especially I, that's also what I love about the podcast is that I, as an anthropology student, get to learn even more about the field because it's such a huge field with so many mm-hmm. different niche subjects that mm-hmm. um, everything there's so much to be learned and it's great. Um, so another, a key difference is that your field work is focusing on collecting this plant data. The field work that I've done and most of the people that I've had on to talk about is more excavation of either, you know, remains or artifacts. So how does field work look for you and how does sample collection uh, kind of differ? Well, not differ, but what does your sample collection look like and some of the methods? I know like in the lab, you guys do flotation samples and things, but I was curious what in the field collecting those. Okay. So my field work is exactly the same as those other archeologists. We work in teams. Um, I design projects. I write proposals. I get funding. I go in the field. I excavate, you know, I, I do everything that all of those, other people do as well. I just study different material remains that come out of those sites. So people study ceramics, lithics, remains, plant remains. So just just another class of materials to be analyzed. So um, so my field work is no different. Um, aside from the fact that different regions conduct field work differently and have different models. Um, but yeah, um, I'm part of all of that. I'm in no way removed. Um, And sample collection really depends on the type of site you're excavating, whether it is a deep vertical site or um, a 
big horizontal uh, open area that that where the community is not that far down below the surface. So you can open a huge section and you can see very clearly the remains of house structures, um, which generally occur as dark stains in the soil because often where I work anyway, um, they're not using stone architecture to build houses, they're using wood. And so you make posts and you've, you know, you create roofs, you thatch the structure, you use the sort of wattle and daub clay against the sides of the house to seal it. And, uh, and then over time, um, those posts rot in the ground and they leave organic stains. So there will be really clear, well, not always really clear, depending on the, the other soil. If that's really dark as well, it might be hard to see. But by and large, you know, you uncover a house, you see all the post molds, you see where the house is, and then you excavate the fill that was in the house. So when people abandon structures, they often, um, you know, throw a lot of trash and everything in the house and then leave. And so that creates sort of a, a level before you get to the bottom of the house filled with dirt and trash. And then you get to the bottom of the house and you see uh, stains on the floor that could be things like, you know, underground storage pit features or hearths where people do their cooking and things like that. So in situations like that, um, I can get really great samples from all those features and houses and post molds and really take a pretty detailed look at, at social relations, economic relations, household differences. You can look at big, big houses versus small houses or their status differences. Do people with bigger houses have access to different things? And the deep vertical sites, um, where things are buried so deep, and this is my Mesoamerican research, um, you know, you're going back thousands of years and a lot has accumulated over that time. And so to get down to that, um, you just don't have the same amount of time to open a wide horizontal expanse to actually capture a community. And so you have to sort of, you survey the site and then you put, different units, maybe, you know, it could vary based on the scale of the excavation. I mean, you could have 10 units or five units or two units, but whatever, you dig, dig deep. And you're, you'll be lucky if you hit a feature. And if you do hit a feature, you'll be lucky if you really know it, <laughs> know what it is because you don't get the whole thing. Um, and so in those situations, you just sample every level as you go down. And then you're basically looking at broad diachronic change over time and diet. And so there's a there's less resolution there to sort of look at sort of spatial community patterning. And so that's why I work in two different regions, actually, because um, I just really like the different types of questions I can ask in those two different regions. So in Meso where in particular in Mesoamerica do you do your work? I do my research in uh, Central and Southern Veracruz. Okay. And one of your current research projects is studying plant domestication and agroforestry there. Uh, first of all, what is agroforestry? And then 
can we discuss kind of what this project is analyzing and the questions that you're okay, asking? Okay, that project uh, uh, come is based from a rock shelter in Honduras. So, so that's uh, not in the other area that I tend to do all my field work. Um, the rock shelter had already been excavated. It's been about 15 years. And um, there's huge desiccated assemblage. And uh, I got pulled into this big project. Um, and, you know, we, we wrote the grants for it and got the money. Doug Kennett, uh, who is also um, our, one of our professors, Dr. Doug Kennett, um, when he was at Penn State previously when we started working on this project, but he is he is one of my collaborators on that, as well as Dr. Heather Thacker, who is a former graduate student of mine out at Texas A&M. So um, basically it is a rock shelter that has occupation spanning the last 12,000 years. And um, we know a lot about maize domestication. We know a lot about it. I mean, we can know more, but um, Mesoamerica and researchers in Mesoamerica in terms of archeology span are, are completely maize centric. Um, it's almost like you would believe people may, mainly just ate maize and didn't eat anything else. Um, so as a result, there's just not been as much attention paid to domestication of other species. And so that's where um, the beans, the bean assemblage, which is quite large from the site, and the avocado assemblage, which is also quite large from the site, um, come into play. And I, so we're very excited about documenting uh, those sort of those changes and hoping to identify key changes in the morphological characteristics of uh, the seeds and uh, for the avocados, the, the peels in terms of texture and thickness. Um, I am really excited to actually be able to analyze these data to look for those patterns of change. And right now we're just, we're waiting on dates, on more dates. We're doing uh, hundreds of dates uh, on directly on different plant materials to, to really work out the chronology first. And we have to just get all that worked out um, until I can truly um, engage in analysis. Every time I try to do a preliminary analysis to see what might be going on with, you know, maybe a quarter or less the assemblage that we have dates on and clear chronological control, um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> That's because it's not all the data. So I've, I've made myself yeah. be really patient about that um, and sort of work on other things because at this point we're, we're done with the data collection. It's all there. Um, it just needs to be analyzed. Yeah. So, um, so the avocados are, are a key thing. We know avocados were domesticated. We have genetic data on avocados um, showing, you know, domestication. Um, but that's ge genetic data on modern avocados to sort of look back at um, sort of genetic changes that happened over long periods of time through various types of modeling. Um, but it would be really nice to know what the, the changes and the characteristics are. And, and it's very possible that you might, we might be dealing with more than one variety of avocados too. So the question is, are we gonna see diachronic change or are we gonna just see two different types? Um, 
Mm-hmm. So that'll be interesting. But the other component here is it's not just avocados. Um, so agroforestry and the development of agroforestry, I argue, um, occurred in concert with uh, the shift to field agriculture in that you can't really think of these as sort of separate things. They're two strategies that, that are really tightly interconnected. Um, especially in lowland contexts where there are forests, right, and jungles, um, more so than there would be, say, in the, the central highlands, which is much more arid and dry. So in these contexts, like in, in all of the samples that I've analyzed in Mesoamerica, there are some really key um, tree seeds that come up over and over and over again, and, and these include um, sapotes, members of the sapotaceae family, and um, the, the most common one is the mame sapote. Um, maybe people are familiar with that. It's delicious, and it's a large sort of uh, fruit that I would say maybe like the size of a mango or papaya. Um, okay. And then, then um, there are other species. There are different types of palm seeds that people use. Um, that they would render for oil, which is really important to cooking and all sorts of things. We imagine all the things we use oil for, um, you know, yeah. in addition to like hair tonics and stuff, right? And, and the tree seeds, were they, are those from, um, are they, were they consuming those? Yes, um, some of them would have been uh, eaten. And we know that because people eat them today. Uh, so, for example, the, the coil palm, which is uh, Acrocomia mexicana, or the other species name would be Acrocomia aculata. Um, different people use the different terms, basically. And what I would say of those is, um, and I've had them, uh, they're delicious. They, um, they are sort of soaked in this really sweet, sweet syrup type thing and then you buy them and there's 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 two sorts of things there's the exocarp sort of the outer shell and then there's the inner seed which is called the uh, the endocarp and that's usually what we see preserved because it's very thick um, and and you know very hardy it may break but it will carbonize without just turning to ash immediately um, and so in between these layers is this, um, the, the edible part. So you would get them without these exocarp covering it. It would be the fruit with the, with the, the seed inside. And the seed is the biggest part. Um, the fruit around it is edible, but it's a very thin layer. And you sort of put it in your mouth and you roll it around and you sort of suck on it and chew on it. And when you're done, you spit out the seed, which is again, large. And it's the seed then that can be processed for the oil as well. So multiple uses out of that. Um, and there are also other palms that people also exploited uh, seeds at, for, for rendering oil, some, some for edibility. Um, sometimes parts of the seed um, are, are ground up and they're included as an ingredient in types of foods as well. 
so multiple uses. And of course, all the, all the palm frond, all the palm leaves uh, from all these palms are, you know, really important for house construction and roof thatching and all of that. Uh, so people are engaging with these trees around them in ways that, uh, in many ways is what I mean. Yes, absolutely. Uses, yeah. So, um, so when we think about people clearing fields to plant maize, um, this isn't what we're thinking about when we see, you know, people developing, say, the rainforest in Brazil or the Amazon. Um, it's very selective burning and it's very selective removal or planting or transplanting of trees. Um, one, you need shade in your fields and uh, places because, you know, people go work the fields. You got to take breaks and be cool and have a place to eat, you know. Uh, and so you're not only going to spare those really useful trees um, in your fields, but seedlings you might find and transplant around your houses and in your gardens as well. They provide shade. They provide food that are right there. I mean, I have, I don't know, 12 fruit trees in my backyard. Um, and it took some getting used to when we first moved in here. And I came home from the grocery store with a bag of tangerines and my husband looks at me and he says, we have two tangerine trees. Why did you buy these? Um, so it, it takes getting used to, I mean, it's a very different lifestyle to have these fruits around you. I made, yeah. oh gosh, 25 jars of peach and plum jam over the spring and summer, you know, we're all stuck at home. I had a good prop. Yeah. That's a great way to <laughs> I'm making limoncello with all my lemons and giving that away. So it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. And it has me also thinking about agroforestry in a very different way than I thought about it before having my own trees. Uh, and it, there's so much knowledge. It's it's going to take me years to truly understand what I need to do for all of these trees um, to get the, the the yields I want, the size of the fruit, you know, all of that. How to best manage them? Um, how to prevent pests in the most natural ways I can? So the the amount of knowledge there. I mean, we take for granted, and these ancient people had it. The modern people there have it as well. They're still they still have their forest gardens um, where there's a cycle. Um, it's not just you, 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 it's not like modern farming where you have these massive fields and you have these single crops in them. It's nothing like that at all. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, one of the people that you really talk about that has studied these forest gardens and talked about their amazing botanical diversity uh, is Annabelle Ford, who's also here at UCSB with the Mesoamerican uh, Archaeological Research Center. And, um, and she's just done a fabulous job of really sort of presenting what, what this actually looks like. And so coming into an era, area, um, having, you know, read all sorts of things about agriculture and agroforestry um, as a academic in my office, right? Uh, here in the United States is, is very different um, from my, you know, having this Western perspective on agri agriculture that, you know, I started with it. it. You really have to flip your worldview 
Um, and that really requires spending time with the people and the communities that live where you're doing the excavations. And and it not like, you know, going and studying them, asking them questions, which one could do if one had proper IRB, you know, yeah. approval and had set up a project, ethnographic or ethnobiological project for that. But it's, you know, you, you, you know, you get to know people, you go back to the same region over and over again, and you have friends there. And, it, you know, it's not just, you know, Mesoamerican archaeologists that are, are native like Mexican archaeologists or Honduran archaeologists, Belize archaeologists. Um, mm -hmm. It's the local people. Um, you end up living in these small communities and, and you, you get invited to houses and you, it's just, it's incredible too. And, you know, sometimes you're out collecting uh, for modern, modern seed material to help you identify your archaeological collections. And, and you get to see, you know, everything they're growing in their gardens, you know, like the, the herbs that they use on a daily basis. They're sort of smaller, the, the other fruits and like peppers and things that they don't need giant crops for, but they, they need it sort of to have them for household use throughout the year. And then, you know, you see their little patches where they have the milpa, you know, where they're growing the maize and they have their bean stalks growing up or there bean vines growing up the maize stalks and, and other things planted out there, uh, different types of squashes and, and whatnot. And it, it, it really is, um, it's completely different than like even the, the English system of agriculture from the same time period. So, and you know, when we go through high school and middle school and all of those things, um, I think this is changing now. I hope it's changing. It certainly has my, for my children going to school here in Galia. Um, but I didn't learn anything about indigenous groups. Um, the most we got, and I grew up in Virginia, so you know, there you have it, is um, the, you know, Jamestown, the Captain Smith, the Pocahontas, and yeah. Um, and then, you know, later on, as you become more educated as an undergrad, as a grad student, you realize that, yeah. wow, the portrayal of these things, you know, as they're taught, oh, God, it's, it's very so one -sided. <laughs> Um But here my kids yeah. are, you know, where, you know, they had a whole 10-week unit on the shoe mesh, um, modern, ancient, they, they had... They had people come that were indigenous Jewish that would come and, and talk to the students and give demonstrations and, but also sort of talk about it, not just like, here's what we used to do, you know, because that's, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole point is for kids to learn that there's a disconnect here between sort of the portrayal of ancient indigenous people and and ignorance of modern indigenous people. Um, yeah, because the Chumash is still really, you know, there is still a big absolutely here. Where we and live. so I'm just, it, I was so excited um, to hear my kids come home and tell me the things that were happening and they were learning and the people that visited and the places they went to. Um, and it was, you know, I just, it, it blew me away. It was not my experience. And I'm really glad that they're having that experience. I, I also did my elementary and middle school years in Santa Barbara, and I 
had the same experience um, getting to go to uh, various like sites and learn about the Chumash history. It's definitely something I am feel yes. very lucky. And you know, when we talk about Chumash history, we're not talking just about archaeology um, at all. Um, that plays a, sort of a, a part of it, certainly, as sort of over real sort of long term. As, but but the Shumash have their own history, right? That is has may have nothing to yeah. do with the archaeological record or only part the archaeological record. And we can't be ignorant to that, you know? We can't prioritize our Western archaeological view over that sort of modern understanding of their own understanding of their history. Um, and, you know, so I hope moving forward um, that there's a lot more true engagement, um, I would say, across both archaeology here in the United States and, you know, down in Mesoamerica where I work and down even into Peru that, um, well, you know, I would say all over the world, actually, <laughs> of true engagement yeah. with the communities that people are studying. And true engagement means you go there and before you even start work and you, you not only present maybe what you're interested in, what you want to do, but it really starts out with what what could you what do you want to get out of this? Is there something you want to get out of this? And um and how can we make that happen and collaborate to that towards that end? Um so for example, I have a, a colleague that um was actually a professor of mine in grad school, Brian Billman, who actually got his PhD here at UCSB. And he's worked down in the north coast of Peru his entire career excavating um, at these sites through which access to get access to them. You have to basically you're going through local villages and um, in, in an area that he worked for several years. And I, I worked with him for two years when I was a grad student down there over um, a long period of time it sort of transformed from, you know, hiring villagers as local workers and as protectors and guardians of the site to bringing in his late father, who was an engineer, um, to engineer um, running, you know, building and a, a system of plumbing and running water. There was no running water. Um, building actual roads um, helping to build and fund school for the local children. Um, and then, you know, he's also created uh, sort of, you know, lo local sort of medical clinics too. And, and that, that became separate from the archaeology, but it, it was in that process of, of lack of resources and the poverty, it's really bad in Peru. Um, every, all the wealth is in Lima, uh, basically. Um, and, 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 and realizing that you can't just exploit labor here um, and then go and, and, and do your thing and write about their ancient ancestors. I mean, how can you just care about what happened with ancient ancestors if you don't care about the modern people, the descendants? Mm -hmm. And that model... Um, of him doing that is just 
not only it's just it's been very it has affected me in a way um, that that has altered that altered my view um, as well. So so true engagement is is really what we need to be doing. Otherwise, we have to ask ourselves, yeah. why are we doing this? What's the point? Are we just writing articles about other people's history um, to publish? So we can get promotions and more money and recognition by, you know, all of these other leading scholars in archaeology. It has to be more than that. Um, I think this would be a good time to bring up that you mentioned in a news article that you think the job of researchers is to be a citizen of today's world. And you encourage your students to use the questions posed in archaeological research to look at our current societies and culture and to answer today's problems. Um, how do you feel like this is now impacting your own research and how you plan to incorporate that, you know, moving forward? And as we all are in all anthropological research, like you said, moving towards that collaboration um, well, um, in archaeology. There's sort of two prongs there. Um, one is the all of the research I've done on sexual harassment and gender equity in the field of archaeology. And anyone that takes my uh, archaeology of gender course, uh, we will, you know, spend like a week or two on that before we actually get into looking at the development of the topic in the field. Because understanding that first part really will put into context the development of the study of gender um, and the people that are doing it. Um, but not only that, um, I mean, there's problems everywhere in every field in terms of gender equity and in terms of harassment. Um, and a lot of current attention is being paid to that as it should. Um, and things are being brought into the light of, about the sort of difference, the, the difference in equality resources um, and then the vulnerability, especially in field work, um, of being a woman on a project or even, you know, a student on a project. Um, so I've been really active. I've done studies with students. We, we've run surveys and published on them. Uh, we did a big thing on uh, harassment in California archaeology based on a big survey. Uh, I did this with three grad students that were not my own. It was out of the gender seminar we took. We decided instead of having them just write critical papers of you know, the literature, let's actually do something that contributes. And you, know, and you guys can get publications out of that. And they did. For two of them, it was their very first publication. So, And from that, you know, those students have become way more involved in, in those topics and pursuing them forward and serving on, on different committees or, uh, or groups uh, as part of professional organizations that are sort of dealing with these issues. So um, I'm really gratified about that, that that altered them as well. Um, so there's that, um, but in terms of like, so tree engagement with the communities in which you're working, um, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll refer to a project that um, I'm 
planning right now that we're writing grants for. I'm, I'm working with a, a colleague from the University of Arkansas, a Dr. Wes Stoner, um, who I've known since I started working down there. And um, this is a really cool project because it's on um, looking at wetland agriculture uh, in the lowlands of central Veracruz, which is a whole new type of agriculture that I get to really sink my teeth into, which is really cool. Um, but also, um, you know, yeah. there are several different local communities that surround us. And, and our first step is, which is all delayed, <laughs> um, but our first step is, not, yeah. you know, to go down there, of course, and, you know, check out the sites again. But um, mainly is the funding is for going down. Uh, we also have a, a Mexican archaeologist. She's a professor at Universidad uh, Veracruzona, who is another PI on the project. So, I mean, it's a full collaboration. Her grad students will be working on it. Our grad students will be working on it. And this is really important. Um, this is how I learned Spanish. I took classes, sure, but I didn't really learn Spanish until working on a project in Mexico where, you know, there were, there were more Mexican students on the project than there were American students. And we were in Mexico, damn it. We had to, we had to speak the language. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so that was a yeah. life-altering experience for me in many ways. Um, so there's certainly that part, but there's also you know, going into the local communities. I mean, sure, you know, we'll be contributing to the local economy. We'll be renting houses, eating food, going to restaurants, um, hiring people uh, to work on the project in various capacities. But again, it's got to be more than that. Um, and and so you, you mm -hmm. uh, sort of the heads of these communities sometimes. You know, it's more of a sort of confederation of people as well. And you have to, you know, what can we do? What can we do here? What do you want to get out of this? Um, and, you know, part of that is um, not taking everything you find out of the local community. Um, for example, there at Tres yeah. Potes, uh, where I worked in 2003, um, and previously there had been a situation years, years before that where, you know, somebody discovered an Olmec head there, right? And um, Ina, which is the National Archaeological Anthropological um, Oh God, institution, if you will. Um, they were going to transport the head out of this community and the members of the town of Tresapotis, um, they blocked the street. They would not let them take their head. And now it is at a museum in the town of Tresapotis. So, you know, there's that certainly. We're not, you know, any anything like that, you know, should, you know, do we help? And they, they have these small things called Casa de Cultura there, um, which, you know, sort of like, like tiny sort of museum. But would they like that expanded? You know, would they like a curriculum, um, yeah. you know, for, for schools where 
they can learn more about the ancient people that lived there before them. You know, what is it we can do? I mean, we can develop curriculums, sure. You know, we can get funds um, to to help build a museum. Um, I mean, we can do these things um, if we actually try, you know, if we actually say, hey, we want to actually give back. Um, It has to be collaborative in some way or it's just more neo-colonialism. And I, for one, do not want to be a neo-colonialist. Yeah. I'm glad that it's that that that's something that we brought up on this episode i think it's something i think about as a lot as well um being as i'm hoping to go forward in my own anthropological career working with skeletal remains you know respecting the wishes of the populations they're from and um recently covid has been beneficial in many ways for me um in the sense that i have been able to redesign courses that I simply didn't have time to. My Mesoamerica class was getting dated and um, less interesting to me. <laughs> and if it's less interesting to me, I'm not going to have the same enthusiasm and it's be less interesting to the students. So it, it also is really important to, to update classes. I'm going to do the same thing I, I did in the spring and I'm doing in the fall. I'm going to bring in guest speakers um, who, are, who can talk about case studies Truly, it is more interesting to hear someone talk about their own research than to hear somebody else summarize it. And, and the other thing there, which I think is really cool, which I, I, I think is cool in the meso class, and I, I think was cool in my uh, paleoethnobotany class in the spring, is, is that students get to see and hear the different trajectories of each scholar um, because not knowing about how careers unfold after undergraduate means that anything students know tend to be very uh, two-dimensional, if you will, Um, that there is a way and here's the way. But the truth is, is there are many, many ways. And if you don't know that, it seems impossible to follow a career in something. And I think, and one of the most important things that needs to change in archaeology is its total and utter lack of diversity. It's really, it's really hard. And, um, and so in order to do that, you you really, really have to, to to make it not only interesting to a lot more undergraduates, it's hard this quarter um, to make sure that my guest speakers were diverse there was diversity among them as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy because there's so much lack of diversity in archaeology. And we also have to be careful, especially in this moment that we're in, in terms of social, ethnic, racial justice, yes. um, that we don't place a really mm-hmm. a much heavier burden on our colleagues from underrepresented groups that then impact their ability to do their own research and have their own successful trajectories. Um, 
So I try to be cognizant, cognizant, cognizant of that. Sorry. Um, and so I, I really made sure to, to focus on, on people that were, were full professors. Um, so they have already established their careers, their research agendas and all of that. Uh, because at this moment, um, especially now, um, a lot of, you know, faculty of color have been pulled in to do all sorts of committee work and service work to help this problem, this institutional racism that, you know, is embedded in all of our institutions, basically. And so the burden to them there is, is it's not good to put on our junior faculty who have to get tenure. Um, so by asking them to do these things, mm-hmm. then we might be undercutting their actual success in the field. So it really, that needs balance too. It's, it's a complicated issue, Gabby. Um, and it needs to be approached um, in, a, in a practical way. Um, not, not just sort of a, a worldview way, but practically we have to find ways to better support these people and these up and coming scholars and professors. We do. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think you as someone who has graduate students are in a really great position to, you know, hopefully be able to bring in more dive, like you said, bring in more diverse backgrounds, voices, ethnicities. Well, I hope that's the case as well. I really do. Also, uh, for our listeners, I wanted to say that uh, Dr. Vanderwerker is clearly an extremely accomplished anthropologist, and I'm going to make sure to link her lab website below and um, uh, her book as well so that our listeners can check out some of the publications and research that we maybe didn't get to delve into, but that if if you heard something interesting here that you'd love to learn more about, I'm going to make sure to have that in the description for you all. And um, if any UCSB students are listening, take a class with Dr. Vanderwerker. I would highly, highly, highly recommend Thank you. That's very uh, flattering. <laughs> well, thank here. you for having me, Gabby. Thank um, you for being here. Hey, thanks for listening. Give us a follow on Instagram at that anthro podcast for more behind the scenes content. Also, make sure to check out our other episodes and leave us a rating on Apple if you liked us. Thank you.